few months ago, I was invited to give uh, the invocation, which is a fancy word for the opening prayer, at the NASCAR race at the Kansas Speedway. And you're probably thinking, well, Mike is from Tennessee. I bet that was a dream come true for him. And to that, I say, please don't stereotype me, okay? <laughs> no, nah, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But you guys, I've told you before, look, I'm, I'm really a, a terrible Southerner. All right, I don't do a lot of country music. I don't wear a camo. Even my accent is kind of going away. I like I'm talking faster. And I had never been to a NASCAR race before. I'd never even watched it on TV. I don't know hardly anything about it except there are these cars. They go really fast. They have stickers, numbers. You know, they go fast in a big circle. They try not to crash. I, I vaguely remember something about Dale Earnhardt. That's all I know, right? That's it. So when I got an email asking if I would like to give the invocation at the NASCAR race, knowing my ignorance and complete lack of interest in the sport, I said, absolutely, I will do it, all right? But I did not realize at the time exactly what I was agreeing to do. I got an email from a NASCAR representative, and they said, hey, we hear you're doing the invocation. Can you please send proof that you're an actual NASCAR fan? No, I'm kidding. They didn't, they didn't say that, thankfully. they just. But what they did say is they said, could you please send us a script of your prayer that is 30 seconds? <laughs> and I thought, 30 seconds? You should never ask a pastor to pray for 30 seconds. But I sent it to them. I did. And, th and then the day of the race came. I took my wife Amber with me and, and first we went and we got these fancy badges they call credentials and my name was on there and it gave us permission to kind of go around to the garages. So we got to park our minivan down in midfield in the infield and, and then we got to walk around and look at the cars and we got to walk down pit row and see all the, the pit crews getting set up and I looked at Amber and I said, you know, we should not be here. <laughs> Like we really, we, it was really, really cool. But I thought, I, I don't think we should be allowed to do this. We don't even like NASCAR. We're frauds and they're going to find out. I asked the security team. I said, are you sure I'm allowed to be down here? They said, I never watched this before. They said, yeah, you, look, you got the credentials. You can do whatever you want. So it came time for the prayer. And they rolled out this stage onto Pitt Road. And all the drivers were out there, and there were cameras and people with headsets on. And that's the moment I found out that I was going to be on TV. <laughs> I just, I missed that part. So I, I thought, okay, now everyone in the whole world's going to know I'm a fraud. They're going to tell. And uh, a guy with a clipboard and a headset, he brought me onto the stage, and he says, all right, man, when I point at you, you pray, and you got 30 seconds. And I thought again, you should never ask a pastor to pray for 30 seconds. But they did a countdown, and then the guy who was holding that clipboard and the headset, he pointed at me, and I prayed for five minutes. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I didn't. I did it. I, I was very obedient, and I tried really hard, and I think I did 30-second prayer. But after I was done, people started texting me. They said, oh, man, I just saw you on TV. I can't believe it, man. How'd you get to do that? You're a fraud. You don't even hunt or fish, right? You can't pray at NASCAR. No, no it, it ended up being a really fun experience people were so kind and I, I think I'm, I'm going to try to be a NASCAR fan now but even though I enjoyed it I still had this feeling that I was really not qualified to be there like I'm just some nobody preacher guy from Tennessee someone else who is much more deserving who at least loves the sport of racing should have had that opportunity and while that's a silly example 
the truth is that feeling, those kinds of thoughts are not unusual for me. And I've learned they're not unusual for most people either. See, all of us at times, I think, struggle with this nagging thought that I'm not qualified for this. Right? I can't do this. I'm not good enough to do this. I'm just a nobody. And that translates over to our spiritual lives as well. You see, we get stuck on our sins and our shortcomings, and we assume that God could never use someone like me to make a difference in his kingdom. We might even stop believing that God loves us and start thinking that he just puts up with us. At the heart of those insecurities is fear. It's a lack of faith in who God is and what he says about us and what he calls us to do. And his message to the nobodies of the world like me is simple. It's do not be afraid. That's our Advent theme this year. We're walking through the first two chapters of Luke's gospel. And we're looking at the key characters in the story of Jesus' birth. And that's what Christmas is all about. It's about the birth of Christ. But unfortunately, when it comes to the Christmas story, we, we tend to have this idealized view of it. Like all the people in the story were wonderful, perfect people who just had it all together. And of course God used them to bring Jesus into the world. They had faith that can move mountains. And they were big time, extra special, holy people. But that's not what we see in Luke's historical account. Instead, we see people filled with doubt. People who were hurting and forgotten. And people who needed to be told, do not be afraid so for the second week of advent let's look at the most famous person in the christmas story outside of jesus which i believe was his mother mary and her experience and struggles with the virgin birth uh, last week if you were here we looked at zechariah and elizabeth and their lifetime of painful infertility and how god spoke right into their suffering and and used them to bring into the world the forerunner of jesus named john despite Zechariah's doubt and unbelief. Well, today we're jumping back into the middle of that story when the same angel that visited Zechariah in the temple visited Mary six months later. So if you have your Bible open, look with me at Luke chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Uh, here again we, we see the angel Gabriel sent from God with an unexpected birth announcement. And that means we've got two parallel stories. If you look there in your Bible you see them there back to back. And Luke organizes his account in this way on purpose to show us the similarities between these two stories. But most importantly the differences. Let's consider those differences. In the first story, Gabriel showed up in the temple, a very formal setting, the high and holy place of Israel's capital. Here in the second story, Gabriel showed up in an obscure, small, rural village with no one else around. In the first story, Gabriel met Zechariah, a priest, one of the leaders in Israel who we learned was a righteous and devout man. And here, Gabriel comes to meet Mary, an unknown girl who has very little introduction. In the first story, Gabriel promised a baby boy to a barren woman, but here Gabriel promises a baby boy to a virgin. 
what we're meant to see are the heightened details of this second story. If you thought the first story was amazing, God's saying, hey, watch this. While both are clear evidences of God's working and both are miracles, this second story with Mary is meant to be greater as the child she bears is meant to be greater. So what do we learn here about Mary? Three things stick out. First off, she's a virgin. That's obviously going to be very important to the miracle part of the story. It makes it clear for us that this child would be conceived by God rather than in the normal way by man. It also tells us that Mary has been faithful to God in her relationships. We don't know a lot else about Mary's spiritual life, except we see later in her response that she is a faithful believer. Second, we learn that Mary is betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal was similar to what we call engagement. Uh, Getting married in Jewish culture was a two-step process. The first step was the formal agreement for a man to take a woman as his wife. He would pay the bride price, and she would be called his wife. And though there would be no sleeping together until after the wedding, which was that second step. In Jewish culture, a girl could be betrothed as early as 12 years old. And I know that sounds creepy to us today, but this was a very different time and culture. There was no such thing as being a teenager. You went from child to adult right after puberty. And Luke doesn't tell us Mary's age, but we can assume that she was somewhere between 12 and 16 years old at this moment. And that's very different from how we commonly view Mary. Though she seems to be spiritually mature, she's not really experienced a whole lot of life. It's likely that she's lived at home under her parents' care right up until this point. Third thing we learn about Mary is that her soon-to-be husband is of the line of David. That is extremely important to this story. Those who know the Old Testament would read this detail and everything would start clicking because it was prophesied long ago to David that the Messiah would come from his family line. That's what we know about Mary. Now let's see now the message that Gabriel brings to her, verses 28 to 33. And he, Gabriel, came to her, Mary, and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I can't even begin to put into words how loaded this language is with Old Testament expectation. Uh, everything the angel says is screaming that this child Mary will bear is the chosen one, the, the Messiah, the Savior that all of Israel has been waiting for. For starters, his name Jesus came from the Hebrew name Yeshua, or in English we would say Joshua. It means Yahweh saves. So just his name was loaded with significance. But next we see that Jesus is called the Son of the Most High or the Son of God. And God will give him the throne of David and he will reign over Israel forever and his kingdom will never end. To anyone who's casually familiar with Jewish history or the Old Testament, this language is soaked with promise and hope. Gabriel's telling Mary that God is going to conceive a baby boy in her, and this baby is going to be the most important person to ever live. 
the one single person this entire nation of people has been talking about and waiting on for thousands of years, the one who would single-handedly save and deliver his people forever. No pressure, right? No pressure. So why in the world did God choose Mary, a young, unknown girl from an obscure village, to play the most important role in the entire nativity story? We've already said that Mary appeared to be faithful to God, but that's not the reason the angel gives. Look at what he says. Twice we see Gabriel refer to Mary as having found favor with God. He says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Then he says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. That word we translate favor also means grace. Gabriel's telling Mary that God has picked her why because of God's grace that's it that's the key this is God's doing it's all by his grace but like any of us would Mary has a simple question look at verse 34 Mary said to the angel how will this be since I am a virgin I'm no biologist but Mary makes a very astute observation that ain't how it works it takes two to tango, and Mary didn't dance. All right. So here's Gabriel's explanation. Look at verses 35 to 38. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Here again, Gabriel attributes the conception of Jesus to God. Specifically, he says the Holy Spirit will overshadow Mary. That word overshadow is a word similar to one used in the Old Testament to describe God's presence overshadowing or covering the tabernacle at the end of Exodus with his glory. As a result, he says the child will be called the Son of God. That's a majorly significant title. We'll explore more as we get further into the book of Luke. But the angel wants Mary to see again that, that God is responsible for all this as he closes with this line. He says, nothing is impossible with God. And notice how Mary responds, especially in light of her young age and obscure background. This response is striking when compared to Zechariah's, who struggled to accept the angel's message. She says, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me, according to your word. So here's the first thing I want us to take away from Mary. In light of our theme, do not be afraid. And here's what I want us to apply to our own lives today. It's this, number one. Number one, God overshadows our limits it's amazing that of all the ways God could accomplish his will in the world he chooses to do it through people this is one of the dominant themes of the whole Bible sometimes God sends an angel sometimes he works a miracle straight from heaven but most often God does his work through regular ordinary people like you and me this is why we shouldn't idolize and look at the characters of the Bible as heroes the authors of Scripture go to great lengths to show that the people in the Bible are, or there that are examples, they were flawed, ordinary sinners who had a great God. 
We saw this with Moses in our series through Exodus. Moses killed a man, fled to the desert, hid for decades. He begged God to pick someone else to go to Pharaoh. He doubted God's ability and care for his people. He tried to give up on them numerous times. And yet God used him anyway. He even took Moses' greatest limit, his speech difficulty, and used him through it to lead a nation out of slavery. We could make the same point with Abraham, Jacob, David, Esther, Ruth, and on and on. These were not superheroes with some kind of special quality that made God pick them. They were not extra holy people who were smarter or stronger or better than everyone else. They were average, ordinary, in many cases broken and flawed people who God used to do his greatest work. Why? Why does God use the people he does? We've already seen the answer in Mary's story. His grace. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things because of his grace. He doesn't just begrudgingly make do with what he's been given as if we're all he has to work with. No, God delights in using ordinary, not good enough people like me and you because it brings him glory. God uses the weak, the broken, the unknown, the simple, the boring, so that everyone can see nothing is impossible with God. When God wants to accomplish his will, he overshadows our limits, just as he did with Mary, to show not how great and powerful we are, but how great and powerful he is. Let's keep going, verses 39 to 45. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Not a wild story. Mary traveled somewhere around 80 to 100 miles to visit Elizabeth, who was her relative. That was a three to four day journey. She wanted to see what God had done for Elizabeth and also to talk to someone, I'm sure, about her experience with the angel. But it's Elizabeth who has the first word, and what she says confirms Mary's message from the angel. From the moment Mary's voice hits Elizabeth's ears, the first miracle baby, John, leaps in the womb. Again, we see this parallel between two miracle pregnancies, yet one is clearly testifying to the other. John is pointing to Jesus even before he was born. Then Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a very unique thing to hear before uh, Pentecost. And and she, she gives this incredible testimony about Mary. She says, Mary, you're blessed by God. Jesus is in your womb, and he's blessed. And she calls Mary the the mother of my Lord, which is a huge thing to say. I mean, think about that. She says, Mary, you're pregnant with my Lord. Let's not skip over this part. 
it's a rather ordinary moment where two ladies get together to visit and talk about their pregnancy, and it turns in to the exact moment of encouragement and confirmation that Mary needed. So here's the second thing we learn from Mary's story. Number two, God encourages us with his people. A timely word of encouragement from God through a brother or sister in Christ is one of the greatest gifts God graciously gives us ordinary people to encourage us in ordinary ways and that's what we see here can you imagine the fears and worries that Mary felt I can't even begin to think of all the questions and concerns she had how would she explain this to her family and friends (laughs) what would Joseph think would he leave her How in the world could she be a mother to the Messiah? There's no doubt Mary had some fears. And so God gave her the encouragement of another believer. I can't tell you how many times someone's encouragement to me has made all the difference. It's not usually been some huge, grand gesture. Usually, it's just a timely text message or phone call. Or someone saying, hey, I just want you to know I'm praying for you and I appreciate you. It's really that simple, and somehow God always seems to time it out when I need it most. Have you experienced that before in your life where someone's just given you that timely word of encouragement? See, when we face fearful situations, when we feel like nobodies, that's when God will often send an Elizabeth. So who has been an Elizabeth to you? Have you ever thanked them for their encouragement in your life? And on the flip side, who can you be an Elizabeth to? Who can you reach out to today with just a simple word of encouragement? Look, we need to know that we don't face this scary world alone, but God gives us his church, his people, to come alongside us and help us through. Elizabeth was that person for Mary, and her encouragement leads to some of the most beautiful words in scriptures. The last part, it's Mary's word of praise to God for what he's done for her. Look at verses 46 to 56. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. There is so much we could say about this word of praise from Mary. It's uh, traditionally been thought of as a song or kind of a hymn of praise. It's it's been titled the Magnificat, which is Latin for the first word, magnify. And that's a great way to sum it up. Mary magnified God because of what he had done for her and was doing for his people. This song is all about God and his greatness. It's not about Mary really at all. I mean, look, look at just some of the attributes and descriptions of God from Mary. Verse 47, she calls God 
her savior recognizing that she comes from a humble estate and that speaks to that that kind of nobodiness that mary felt verse 49 she says that god is mighty holy is his name verse 50 she says god is merciful verse 51 god is strong verse 54 god is a helper and we see also these these themes that will play out in the life and ministry of jesus Mary is setting up and really prophesying about what Jesus, her son, will do. There's this key idea of reversal, how the the kingdom of God will will flip things on their head. The proud are scattered. The the mighty are brought down. The rich go away empty. Well, it's the humble who are exalted and the hungry who are filled. In other words, Jesus is going to upset the order and value system of the world. And he's going to bring justice and salvation to those who recognize their need for him. This is a startling message. And it's amazing that Mary, of all people, gets to proclaim it to the world. Through her life, Mary becomes for us a picture of what God does for nobodies like me and you. He takes sinners people who have rebelled against him who do not deserve his love but his judgment and he saves them forgiving them of their sin he he takes us from the lowest furthest place and he lifts us up he takes us from slaves and makes us his his sons and daughters he he makes nobodies somebodies in his kingdom and then he uses us nobodies as ordinary sinners redeemed by jesus to announce the greatest message in the world And that's the third and last thing we see from the story of Mary. Number three, God tells his story through nobodies. God could spread his message of salvation in any way he wants. He could write it in the sky. He could send it in in the mail to every person on the planet. He could shout it straight from heaven. But all along, he has chosen to use flawed, imperfect human beings. When Jesus left the earth, he left 120 followers who he called to be his witnesses. This included men and women, most of whom we don't even know their names. And they turned the world upside down. That's been his pattern all along. If God could use an unknown teenage girl from a small town to play the biggest role in this whole story, why would you think he can't use you? What excuse do you have for thinking you're unqualified to be used by God? Well, I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm not strong enough, smart enough, rich enough, cool enough. I'm shy, scared, depressed, anxious, sick, weak. I'm messed up. I got regrets, secret sins, baggage. I've got a past. I'm a hypocrite. I don't know enough about the Bible. Nobody will listen to me. I'm too busy, too stressed, got too much going on. I just don't have time. What else you got? (laughs) That about cover it? I mean, do you really want to read this story and then make an excuse? Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you've been. God knows you better than anyone else, than you even know yourself, and yet he still loves you. And his desire is to save you and to send you out into the world. God wants to use you to make a difference in somebody else's life. God is willing. The question is, are you? God is calling. The question is, are you listening? God is sending. The question is, will you go? 
I believe one of the simplest things each of us can do to make a difference this Christmas season is intentionally love and serve our neighbors. I beat this drum a lot because I believe it. That's why we introduced the Bless Every Home app so you could begin praying regularly for your neighbors by name. I hope you've begun to do that, begun to see and think of your, your street or your, your complex as a mission field. Now, I want to challenge you to take the next step. I want to challenge you to find a way to connect with your neighbors this Advent season. Take them a card. Bake them some cookies. Invite them over for hot chocolate. Find something simple you can do just to make sure they know that you see them and you value them. And then step out and invite them to come and sit with you on Christmas Eve. Who knows? That may be the very thing God uses to change their lives. They may be waiting to see if someone, if anyone, cares. We're going to have our two normal morning worship services that day. And my prayer is that we will have people here who have never heard the good news about Jesus. That they would hear that Christmas isn't just some fairy tale about a baby. But it's about a God who sent his son through ordinary people like Mary. So that other ordinary people like me and like you, nobodies can become his children that's our calling this advent season will you answer the call would you bow with me in prayer